Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. We have been playing uh, where we could some of the best of Jeffrey Osborne all three hours of our program today. Last hour, we had to... uh, uh, focus on Paul Robeson, and I think even I think even Jeffrey Osborne wouldn't be mad uh, about uh, our focus on Paul Robeson uh, in last hour. But uh, we got one more hour to go, and we're gonna squeeze in some more Jeffrey Osborne as we celebrate the music of Jeffrey Osborne and solo LTD. Uh, but June, of course, is Black Music Month, and we are every day on this program choosing one artist uh, to be, as we call it, our artist in residence. I should say our artists. I, I should probably call it our artists in abstention. They're not actually in residence. Our artists in abstention. They ain't here, uh, but their music is here, and it sounds awfully good. So today, Jeffrey Osborne. Who knows uh, who will get the call for all three hours of tomorrow's program? But you can't do much better uh, than Jeffrey Osborne. Still sounding good and looking good, and uh, we are pleased to bring you some of the best of Jeffrey Osborne in in this hour as we celebrate June Black Music Month. In this hour, a talk with Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist Darren Bell about his new work called The Talk. The Talk, as you know, is a dialogue born of necessity. It is a somber rite of passage in the black community aimed at preparing youth for the potential violence they may encounter solely based on the color of their skin. I paused when I said may encounter Maybe the word should be likely encounter uh, based solely on the color of their skin. Uh, the story Darren Bell tells in this book, The Talk, is one that reverberates with love and concern. And I'm pleased to have as I guest in this hour, Darren Bell. Darren, how are you, sir? I'm great. And th- thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you here, man. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for the book. Uh, beautifully done, by the way. I wish the audience could just see this and maybe i'll hold it up to the camera here for those who are watching on the live stream but it's a it's a wonderful um wonderful piece of work uh, beautifully done so congratulations first of all on the book itself um let, let me ask Thank you, you. Uh, you're welcome let me ask you what um what got you to tackle this particular subject it's something that again in the black community we all know we all are aware of we've all been you know been a part of these conversations um uh, about the talk uh, many of us have been subjected to the talk from our parents, but but what made you want to tackle this as as, as a subject, Darren? Well, <clears throat> this was not actually the, the book that I set out to write at first. I I sold a I sold another book. It was a memoir about my grandfather, who was the grandson of a slave named Addison Bell, and another one named Sally Ann, uh, Susie Ann Baltimore. And I was working on the first couple chapters of that book when George Floyd was murdered. Mm. And the, the summer protests began. And my editor and I had a, had a talk that day, and we decided to put that book on the back burner and instead write something that spoke to this moment. And we spoke for about an hour, and, and we came up with what I was going to talk about. I mean, we, I, we brought up a lot of incidents from my childhood, you know, I wasn't sure why I was bringing these these incidents up, but I knew eventually these were like puzzle pieces that I was going to fit together into a book. And toward the end of the conversation, I, I told her just offhand, I said, you know, it's ironic. My mom gave me the talk when I was six. And just yesterday, my, my six-year-old boy looked at me and asked, who's George Floyd? Mm. And, I, and I was faced with the, I was, I was faced with the, with the, you know, with the realization that I might have to give him the talk now. Yeah. 
Mm. You, and, uh, and so we, so we just, as soon as I said that, she said, my, my editor said, that's the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you got me, you got me, uh, you got my attention now. So I, I am curious, what does a parent say? And in your case, a black male parent say when your six year old son asks you, daddy, who's George Floyd? What do you say? Well, that's, that's the climax of the book, so I don't want to say exactly what I said. Mm-hmm. But um, a, a few years, a couple years earlier, my wife and I were at the opening of the African American History Museum. And as we were walking through, we were asking ourselves, when is our son's daughter going to be old enough for the talk? And we, we decided maybe around 11, maybe, maybe 10. Um, but when my son looked at me and said, who's George Floyd? My wife and I looked at each other and silently agreed that the correct time to give the talk is when your child is old enough to ask about it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and you, you have to you have to do it in you have to do it in an age appropriate way. Sure. So we, we told them as much as as much as we could, uh, you know, recognizing that in doing so we're going to be robbing him of a, a little bit of his innocence. And, you know, he was still at an age, at the age of six, where where you believe in magic and you believe that the world, the whole world loves you and welcomes you. And, you know, we have to take that away. We have to decide whether to take that away from him. You know, with the knowledge that if we didn't do it, the world was going to come along and do it for us in a much worse way. Yeah, that's that's but that's a that's a powerful frame. Uh, I've had many conversations in uh, on this microphone and and out of this studio with all kinds of all kinds of folk uh, about that very question. When is the appropriate age? When is the appropriate time to have the talk with your son or daughter? Uh, and I love that answer. That the appropriate time may very well be when they're old enough to ask about it. It seems to me that if your son is six years old. And he asked you, Daddy, Mommy, who is George Floyd? You don't, you don't, you don't punt. You don't punt that opportunity to answer that question. You got to do it, as Darren Bell said, in an age-appropriate way. But maybe that's the answer to that vexing question: When do you have the talk? When they are old enough to ask you a question like, "Who is George Floyd?" He's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. His book is called "The Talk." His name is Darren Bell. He's talking right now on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. I better get it now before he goes to the bridge, because if, if he hits that bridge, I'll never stop talking. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the music of Jeffrey Osborne, uh, we are bringing to you today again as we celebrate Black Music Month. I don't know who the artist is tomorrow, but today he is Jeffrey Osborne. We continue our conversation now with the Pulitzer Prize winner, Darren Bell, as we discuss his new book, The Talk. And we all know what The Talk is all about. We were just talking before that break. Uh, about when the appropriate time is to have the talk with your young son, your daughter, for that matter, these days. And perhaps the answer is uh, what Darren Bell offered us, uh, when your child is old enough to ask you about it. Uh, He mentioned earlier that his son came to him at the age of six and said to him, Daddy, who is George Floyd? If that ain't a way in, uh, I don't know what is. Um, Darren, you also referenced earlier that, uh, ironically, uh, your mother had the talk with you when you were six years of age, what what do you recall about that all these years later? Uh, I I recall the main thing I recall is it made absolutely no sense mm. to me. It, it it sounded like the 
the most paranoid, um, <laughs> you know, the, the most paranoid parent warning. But she had already told me that, you know, if I if I had climbed to the top of that to the top of that play structure at the dinosaur park, I was going to fall off and break my neck. And that mm. didn't happen, you know? Mm. <laughs> so here she is telling me, you know, I asked her I asked her for a water gun, and she told me, you know, it might actually end up getting me shot at the age of six. And, I, you know, I thought that was ridiculous. So, um, but I also recall how hard it was for her to do it. I remember her being at a loss for words, which was weird for her because she was a, she was an English teacher. She was, she was a very good talker. And, you know, here she was kind of stammering and, you know, I I could tell she did not want to tell me what she was telling me. Mm -hmm. When you mentioned um, your mother suggesting to you that giving you a, 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 a toy plastic water gun might result in your really being shot by somebody with a real gun with real bullets. And you might be real dead as a process, uh, as a result of that process. My mind went to where you probably suspected went to Mir Rice. Um, so your mother told you that story some years ago, fast forward a couple of decades and you are a grown man and you see that that in fact did happen to a young black boy named right. Tamir Rice. When that happened, I can only imagine that your mind must have flashed back to your mother not wanting you to have a plastic toy gun. But what did you think when the story of Tamir Rice uh, became breaking news? Well, by by that time, I was I was grown, and I had seen I had seen and heard enough to to not be surprised. Um, but I. You know, I was, it was still devastating mm-hmm. um, cause, because, you know, I, growing up, I always believed what Dr. King said about the, the arc of the moral history bending toward justice. But, and, and I believed that I was, that I had seen it for the first few decades of my life. But then beginning with Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin, you know, I, I, I feel like we've, like that arc has done a 180 Mm. like we we've taken we've taken too many steps backward and you know when when tamir rice was gunned down i called my mom and i and i thanked her again for for giving me the talk and you know we commiserated about tamir rice uh there's there's so many things he could have done with his life you know, when they when they gunned him down, they didn't just gun him down. They gunned down the future children he was going to have. Mm. You know, the, his whole lineage they ended in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And 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 the police don't seem to see it that way. They they just seem to see it as they're they're putting down a threat, which is which is how my mom how my mom told me they would see it. Yeah. When you quoted Dr. King a moment ago. Uh... I had this reaction uh, in my head, which I will now share um, out of my mouth. Uh, it, it, there's not much that King said or did that I argue with. This audience knows uh, full well how I regard Dr. King as the greatest American this country's ever produced. I wrote a book about Dr. King. He is my hero, as one of our guests uh, said earlier today, uh, speaking of Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson inspires her to live the courage of her convictions. 
that's what Dr. King has done for me and still does. He, he inspires me, encourages me, he motivates me, he challenges me um, to live my life by the courage of my convictions. And so it's hard for me to argue with much of what um, King said or did. There are a few things that I would argue, though, that said. And one of them is that great quote that everybody uses, and you used it a moment ago. King said that the arc of the moral universe uh, is long, but it always bends toward justice. And I've always said that if Dr. King were here, I would, I would, I would, I would want to talk to him about that one quote. Because the question is, does the arc of the moral universe always bend, B-E-N-D, toward justice, or do we have to bend it? <laughs> is it bent toward exactly. justice uh, by the ways in which we show up, by the ways in which we move, by uh, the things like the talk? That's how you bend it toward justice. It does not just bend. It must be bent. And so I, I, I would challenge Dr. King on B-E-N-D versus B-E-N-T. And I think the, the, the talk is a part of our, you know, bending it toward justice. That's my take. You used the quote. Now you have my perspective on it. What say you, Darren Bell? Well, that's, that's, the, same, that's the same perspective I have. It doesn't just bend automatically. Um, you know, we, we can't. We can't wait. We can't just depend on the majority culture and others to, to to continually be enlightened more and more and more enlightened with every passing year. You know, they they take steps backwards. They they talk themselves out of the progress that they that they had, you know, that they had previously bought into, um, and they talk themselves out of it easily. We we have to keep. We have to keep agitating. We have to keep pushing. We have to keep shaming. You know, we, we have to keep reminding our children that what they see happening is not in their imagination, even, even though they're constantly being gaslighted and told that, you know, what's happening to them is, is the function of a thousand other things instead of this one obvious thing that's right in front of them, mm-hmm. which is white supremacy, racism. Um, yeah, we, we, we can't, we can't stop bending the arc or, or it's gonna, or, or it's, like I said, it's going to do a 180. Yeah. yeah. One of the things about, one of the things about the talk, I can be honest and confess this to you, Darren. Um, and I don't have any kids as yet that I, I that I'm, you know, responsible for having the talk with. I certainly have, you know, you know, many nieces and nephews. Um, but I, I feel for black parents, uh, who have to have this talk with their babies. And there are many reasons I feel for them. One of them is simply this though, that on demand, it seems to me, when you engage the talk with your youngster, you are telling them, you are suggesting to them, you are confirming for them your point about age appropriate, notwithstanding you're, you're, you're essentially telling them that their life doesn't matter. That there is a fundamental lack of respect and regard for their life, for their humanity, and for their dignity. My parents didn't have the right. talk with me when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We didn't. We, they, I, I didn't have that talk. They didn't have it with me. But there's something fundamentally wrong. There's something fundamentally disturbing about the reason to have to have the talk. And it is, as I said earlier, that there's a fundamental disregard and disrespect for their life, 
for their humanity and for their dignity. That is a lot to put on a young black male or a young black female, although it is as real as rain, Darren Bell. Right, right. Well, the the way the way we did it when we had that first conversation with him, and I, and I say first because the talk isn't just a one time thing. Yes, it's yes, a, yes, yes, yes. It's yes. a conversation that lasts throughout your life, mm-hmm. and and that's one of the reasons why the why the book shows me at very at, at different different points in my life as a child, as an adolescent, as mm-hmm. an adult, starting my own my own business. Um, building my own family, because uh, white supremacy, racism, aggression comes at you differently at different points in life. Mm. Um, so the, I'm sorry, what was, what was the first question? No, I was, I was, it, 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 there wasn't a question. I was just saying that you, 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 what, what you're saying to your son when you're talking to him at six oh, yes. is that his life d- doesn't matter, that there, there is no respect for, for his humanity and his dignity. You can't have the talk without that being at the epicenter of it, and that's a lot to put on a young man, young boy. Well, see, what, what we began with when we gave him the first talk was that there, there is a certain percentage of white people who feel that their lives have no worth, um, that their lives unless there's somebody out there who's less, even less significant than they are, mm-hmm. and that's why they're, and that's why they're pretending mm. that that black people's lives don't matter. And we we drove that point in with our son over and over again, and and I I think that's essential is is to is to point out why people why people are are diminishing and belittling. Uh, black people it's it's not it's not something that we've done you know it's not something um inherently bad about being black it's it's an insecurity that that white people have and and other people have that they're trying to overcome by putting by putting us down yeah um darren bell um is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist. Um, so that gives you some sense of the way this book is laid out. This is, of course, radio, although we're live streaming right now, as we do every day. Uh, when we come forward throughout the news, traffic, and sports, I'm going to let Darren um, describe it as best he can because it's his book. <laughs> I can't do justice to it, but it's a beautiful book. And for those who are watching uh, online, I'm holding it up. You can actually see how beautiful it is. And uh, when we come forward, I'll open up the inside and show you some pictures from the inside if you're watching on the live stream. Uh, but it's, it's, it's beautifully done. Uh, it's beautifully laid out, uh, uh, masterfully uh, done. And I want to let Darren describe to you what you're going to see and how he approached laying out this book, The Talk. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I wish we had time, uh, Miles, to tell the audience the story uh, that Jeffrey told us so beautifully of how he became a lead singer. It's, it's a funny story. It takes some time to share it. Uh, but most of you know Jeffrey Osborne uh, as the lead singer of LTD. That ain't how it started. He started out as a drummer. He was in the back of the band. And nobody knew that Jeffrey Osborne could sing. And the way he became the drummer for LTD, the funny story behind that, the OJs were in town one night in Providence, Rhode Island, where he grew up. And their drummer was strung out on drugs that night and didn't show up. He's a 15, 16-year-old kid. But he could play drums, and somebody at the club knew this kid could play drums. And they grabbed Jeffrey Osborne at 15 and a half, 16 years old, and put him on the drum set 
with the mighty, mighty OJs. <laughs> That's how his career started, playing as a 15, 16-year-old kid for the OJs, filling in for their drummer who was stoned out of his mind and couldn't make the show that night. Uh, and the same thing happened with LTD. He's on the drums, and their lead singer had drug issues. And one night he didn't show up, and Jeffy said, I can sing. And they put a microphone in front of him. And the rest, as they say, is history. And we celebrate today the legacy, the rich musical legacy of one Jeffrey Osborne uh, as we celebrate uh, Black Music Month here in the month of June. I just said, I wish I had the time. I took the time. I told you. There you have it. That's the short version. But to hear Jeffrey tell it is, is quite an amazing story. And, we, and when he was uh, last on this program, he shared all the details of how that story came to be. And he begged his mama to let him go on tour with the OJs. She said, boy, you've lost your mind. You were 15 years old. You were not going on tour with the OJs. Uh, but it all worked out. And, uh, again, I can't imagine the soundtrack of my life without the music of Jeffrey Osborne on it. Uh, our guest in this hour is Darren Bell. His new book is called The Talk. Uh, he is a... Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist. And so you can probably imagine the way he's laid this book out. So Darren, I'm going to pass the mic to you. I'm going to turn this book around. First of all, you see the, for those who are watching on the live stream, there's the cover of the book. It's a beautiful uh, color and beautiful cover. And now I'm going to open up the inside and just give you a sense of what the book actually looks like on the inside, how Darren has laid this book out. So Darren, the audience can see this, those who are watching on the live stream. So tell me about the book, the way you approach it, the way you laid it out, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist you <laughs> well it's on a on a technical note it's it's drawn cinematically i was thinking i was thinking in terms of a in terms of a movie when i was when i was creating it and i think that's why it's such a fast read it's it's about two and a half hours to, to finish it mm -hmm. um and the what the what the book is about is when i was when I was six years old, my friends, my white friends, were playing with uh, with some toy guns that looked absolutely real. They looked like Smith and Wesson. Mm -hmm. And you know, I went and asked my mom to to buy me one. And that's when that's when she ended up giving me the talk that we were that we've been talking about. And she saw how crushed I was, so she ended up buying me a translucent green water gun that could not possibly be mistaken for a weapon. And, but, but still, she made me promise to only play with it in the backyard. And as soon as, as, soon as she wasn't looking, I snuck out, of course, and I, I roamed through the neighborhood shooting everything in sight, you know, pretending everything was a, was a stormtrooper. And I was Luke Skywalker escaping the Death Star. Mm. And I stopped at one point to refill it, and that's when I heard somebody say, drop the weapon. And I looked up, and it was a police officer. And for a split second, I thought he was there to play with me. But the look on his face told me that this was anything but that. So I was terrified. And the way I reacted to that was I froze. I just knelt down on the ground and closed my eyes and wished that he would go away. And eventually he did. He stopped barking orders at me and eventually he left. And I felt so much shame from that that I didn't tell any about, any, anyone about it for years. I felt like at the age of six, I should have been able to stand up to him and, you know, and talk some sense into him and tell him that I'm just a little kid playing. And I didn't even try, I didn't try anything. Um, so I, I bought into the notion that I brought it on myself. I bought into, I mean, the, the book, the book follows me through elementary school 
and then through high school, and you see me buying into this notion of respectability politics, where if I just am at, am at least as, ambi- as ambitious and accomplished as everybody around me, then people who see me as less than will realize that they're wrong, and you know I'll be accepted. But eventually, I mean, I even become a I even become a security guard at one point in college. But eventually, in college, even out, even though I've become a freelance, a successful freelance cartoonist, I've started building a business. I was even selling cartoons to the professors to use in their textbooks and their academic readers. Something happens in college that's a huge wake up call to me. That told me that no matter how well I did. No matter how I saw myself, this was how they saw me, and they were gonna do. They were gonna do everything they could. This one professor called me into her office right before graduation and accused me of of plagiarism mm. without having any evidence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I realized that there's gonna be somebody who comes along and sees me doing well and is going to try to sabotage me. Um, just like I said before, to I guess to make herself feel better, um, to reinforce the worldview that that was comfortable to her, that that placed her on a hierarchy above black people, um, and after that, you know, I I showed the book. The book follows me as I become a as I become a professional cartoonist, and I start to cover. Um, the wider world, like I, I cover, it shows me cover the Obama race, um, you know, 9-11, uh, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, all of that leading up to, uh, leading up to George Floyd. Um, when, when I have to decide whether my son is old enough to have the same talk that my mom gave me. And I show in the book how, how courageous it is. Because I know how hard it is for a lot of people to give the talk. My father never gave it to me. And I think I resented that growing up. Because if he had given me the talk, I don't think I would have been surprised by anything that happened to me. It, it might not have, you know, it wouldn't have changed my life. But what it would have changed was I wouldn't have felt like I was the one who was responsible for, for, the, for racist reactions from other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have that would have gone a long way, you know, in terms of in terms of mental health and, you know, in, in terms of confidence. You know, I would have realized that, no, I, when some when somebody tries to tries to sabotage you just because of what you are and who you are, you didn't bring that on yourself. Um, so that that's uh, I think that's that's the lesson that I try to drive home in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I had one of those experiences in college as well. Um, they accused you of plagiarism. I had a teacher, uh, professor, just out of the blue, accused me of cheating on a test. And uh, we went at I, I dragged her to the dean's office. We went at it, man. We went at it. I, I did not come to Indiana University uh, to get to be a senior and a national champion, a national champion debater, and all the things that I'd done in college to have you accuse me of cheating on a test. Uh, just randomly, and so I know what that experience for you must have felt like because uh, I had something similar happen to me when I was in college as well. I digress on that point. Um, when we come forward, I'm curious as to how Darren Bell, so early on, 
got on the track to being ultimately a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist. You heard him say earlier he was drawing cartoons for professors to put in their books, etc., etc. Um, what drew him to this art form? How did he get in this lane on this path to becoming a Pulitzer Prize winner? Our guest is Darren Bell. His book is called The Talk. He's right now on KBLA Talk 15.8 piece of, uh, of, of work. Um, so, Darren, you, you mentioned earlier how you were doing cartoons for professors and, and others starting your business in college. Um, how did you get in this lane? How did this become um, uh, your, your work and your witness being a uh, an editorial cartoonist, and of course, years later, would come the Pulitzer Prize. But how, how did this become you? Well, it, it was me from as far back as I could remember. My dad and I weren't that close, but one of the things we shared was when I was three and four, he would let me sit on his lap and we'd watch All in the Family and the Jeffersons. And I, he was a different person when we were watching that. He was He would light up, he would laugh, and... I realized then that I wanted to be a political satirist mm-hmm. um, because that's basically what I thought these shows were. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I, I loved to draw. Um, and another thing we shared was cartoons in the in the newspaper. So that I knew I knew from from then on that I wanted to do it. So when I when I got to high school, then I was high. Um, I, I joined the school paper with the goal of becoming a cartoonist, uh, but they didn't have one, so I. Ended up, I, I decided to become the editor in chief so that I could create, I could create the position, <laughs> and, then, and then fill it myself. So, in, in order to become editor in chief, I had to write, I had to write about five articles every paper, every issue, so that you know nobody would want to compete with me yeah. to be the editor. Um, so then, you know, I, I chose when I graduated. I chose to go to UC Berkeley because they had the best. Uh, student paper, the best public school student paper in the country, mm-hmm. and they did not have a cartoonist. So I, you know, I marched into the paper and I, I told them that I was going to be their new cartoonist, and and they said okay. <laughs> and you know, as soon as as soon as that first one ran, I faxed it to the Los Angeles Times, along with a letter saying I'm I'm the cartoonist from the Daily Cal. And I, I started faxing them cartoons almost every day for about a year. I was getting no response. But then after about a year, they called me and they said, if we assign you a cartoon every other week, will you please stop faxing us? <laughs> so, so, so from then on, you know, I, I, sent, I sent letters to other papers saying that I, I'm, the, I'm the youngest freelance cartoonist in, in the country. I'm in the L.A. Times. And, you know, that got me into the San Francisco Chronicle and a bunch of other papers. And finally, I, I caught the eye of the syndicates and my work was my work became nationally syndicated. I, I, I love the hustle, man. I love the hustle. I'm like Mary J and Jay-Z. <laughs> I ain't knocking no hustle, man. But I, I just love stories like that. And I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad I didn't know the answer to it, but I'm glad I asked and I'm glad you answered because it's it's instructive. It's informative. It is inspiring. It is uplifting for the audience to hear that. You just got to hustle. Uh, if you've got the gift yeah. uh, and you got to use it, you got to make others aware that you have the gift. Uh, again, you and I, are, our, our stories are parallel in so many ways. That's how I got to L.A. Yeah, I, I wanted an internship with Tom Bradley, and many people know this story. I wrote Tom Bradley a letter for months and months and months 
Uh, and I finally, long story short, uh, I'm in I'm in Indiana. He's in L.A. I finally got an internship with Tom Bradley because they just got sick and tired of this kid from Indiana writing letters every day and calling every day, begging begging for a free internship. I came from Indiana to L.A. Uh, for a four month five month internship to work for free. But I was a Tom Bradley fan, and I wanted to meet Tom Bradley. He was my Kappa brother. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to work for him. But I wrote them so many letters, they got sick of hearing from this guy named Tavis uh, in somewhere in the Midwest in Indiana. Uh, and so I, I, I love your story of just uh, hitting the L.A. Times every day for a year to let them know you are a cartoonist and y'all need to respect my work. And uh, who knew uh, he did that years later he'd be a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist. I love that story. I could levitate out of this studio right now on that story. Our, main, our remaining moments with Darren Bell, author of the talk when we come forward on KBLA questions here. Let me start with this. Um, who uh, uh, is the target audience for this book, the talk, and what do you hope um, the takeaway will be for that target audience when they read your book, the talk? It's It's got three, three target audiences. The first is Middle school and up, kids kids who are experiencing all this and need to be told that, that, that it's not in their imagination. It's also for parents, uh, for black parents in particular, who are, are reticent to give the talk because when they look at their kid, they see this, this precious little, 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 little child with so much potential and dreams and they don't want to crush any of it. It takes real courage to... to to overcome that and to and to arm them with knowledge of what they're going to be facing, and I hope the book will give them courage. It's also for for white people who find themselves asking all the time, why why do black people complain so much? And they 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 don't get to be black, but they get to be black for about 350 pages, and when when they come out with it on the other side, I think they'll have the answer to that question. Mm. I'm just looking as you're talking. Uh, there's so many great, I mean, it's a great story, of course. I'm just uh, flipping pages, and I stopped on a page um, that uh, has uh, the father essentially talking to the son, saying to the son, stay with the flow of traffic, follow the rules, drive right, be calm, you'll be okay. And the young man says, and then they'll treat me like a human being? I mean, it's... Uh, there's a lot of lot, lot of good stuff in this book, man. And uh, to, again, to Darren's point, if you are reticent, uh, if you have uh, not yet figured out how to have the talk, um, the one that you know you need to have, uh, I can't imagine a better tool uh, than this book, The Talk, which Darren Bell has uh, given to us. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist. His name is Darren Bell, D-A-R-R-I-N Bell. The book is called The Talk. Again, it's a beautiful piece of work, Darren. Um, thank you for this conversation. Congratulations on the book and all the awards you've, you've won from the Pulitzer Prize to the Berryman Award to the RF Kennedy Journalism Award. Uh, he's racking them up, uh, and um, I love it. Uh, Darren, congrats, man. Good to have you, you on. All the best to you, sir. Thank you, sir. My honor to have had you on. Thank you for the time. Uh, that's it for today. Time to make room now for the KBLA Midday Money Chain. Up next, the Millionaire's Roundtable with Lynn Richardson to be followed by Ahead of the Crypto Curve with Najee Roberts. Old money, new money. Either way, we've got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, until tomorrow morning, thanks for tuning in. And as always... <laughs> 